did through him in your midst, as you know yourselves. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David said, says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my, my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Please join me in a brief moment of prayer. Once again, Lord God, we uh, pray that as we begin to look closely at uh, your Apostle Peter's sermon at Pentecost and as we begin to walk through it, Lord, we pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would enable us to understand his words, Lord. We pray that as we focus upon the words of Scripture and as we focus upon your Son, Jesus Christ, as we focus upon the resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ, Lord, we pray that through it all you would edify our souls. We pray that you would deepen our love for you and for your son. We pray that we would be given the assurance that the resurrection of Christ was intended to bestow upon your church. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. So as we uh, gather this uh, Resurrection Sunday, obviously this is the day in which we come together to remember and to celebrate the the resurrection of Christ uh, from the dead. And the resurrection of Christ is the most significant event in the entire life of Christ. It is the most significant event for all of Christianity, and I know that that is a uh, a monumental claim to make because we think of the cross and we understand that there is no salvation apart from the cross, and we understand that the cross of Christ is what atones for our sin. But in the end, when we think of all that Jesus did, there are a lot of things about Jesus' life that could be 
altered that would have very little impact on who he is or what he accomplished. For example, could Jesus' mother's name have been Martha or Jane? Probably. No reason why it had to be Mary. Could have been something else. Could Jesus have been born the son of a fisherman rather than the son of a carpenter? Probably. See, no reason why that could be different. In fact, in some ways, being the son of a fisherman might have been more significant, but in God's divine providence, he was born the son of a carpenter. You think of some of the miracles, or all of the miracles that Jesus performed. You know, what if the walking on water had never taken place and just never even been recorded, or Jesus not raising Lazarus from the dead? What if Lazarus had died and Jesus simply used that as an opportunity to maybe teach his disciples about how we need to trust in God as we go through difficult situations in life? And Lazarus had remained dead. Or Jesus being crucified on a cross. Did it have to be a cross? Could he have been nailed on a pole with maybe both hands above his head? Or could he have died in some other horrific manner other than a Roman cross and crucifixion? Probably. But the resurrection had to happen exactly as it happened. Because there's no way to really slightly alter the resurrection of Christ. Either he was raised to life or he wasn't. Either he was truly dead and came back to life or he was not truly dead and came back to life. I know that we sing about the cross of Christ and we talk about the cross and we preach about the cross and we understand the significance of the cross, but without the resurrection of Jesus Christ, everything else, including the cross of Christ, is meaningless. Jesus' death, his virgin birth, his walking on water, all of the miracles... Even as we go back to the Old Testament, the parting of the Red Sea, the deliverance of Israel, the Ten Commandments, all of the law and the prophets, all of it is meaningless without the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is why historically, historically, all that Jesus did and taught of everything that he did and taught the resurrection of Christ is the thing that has been most attacked by unbelievers and liberal scholars alike. Because if you want to get rid of Christ and if you want to get rid of Christianity and the influence that it has in this world, you have got to get rid of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You've got to figure out a way to explain that away. If you cannot explain away the resurrection of Christ, you cannot get rid of Christ and Christianity and the influence that he has and continues to have in this world. As a result, all sorts of theories have been developed over the centuries to try and explain away the resurrection of Christ, right? The popular swoon theory. Jesus didn't really die. He just passed out. He thought he was dead. They took him off the cross. They put him in the tomb. And he came to. He moved the stone and he came out and he went and visited his disciples and 
said, Behold, I'm alive, and they believed him. People actually believe this stuff. They fail to recognize the fact that after Jesus' flogging, he would have lost so much blood, he wouldn't have had enough strength to walk out of the tomb. They fail to recognize the fact that after having giant nails driven through his wrist and his hands and his feet and hanging there for six hours, his hands would have been completely mutilated and incapacitated. He wouldn't have been able to roll away a stone. And after the flogging and the beating that he had had to show up to his disciples and say, here I am, yeah, they would have been shocked to see him. He would have looked like the walking dead. They would have been terrified to see someone like him as he limped along down the road, dragging his hands and his feet from the beating that he had received. They also failed to recognize the fact that the Romans were experts at killing people. They knew how to make sure that someone was dead. It doesn't take a genius to figure it out, really. They understood that just because a person stops breathing doesn't mean that they have died. They knew that a person had to stop breathing for an extended period of time, a certain amount of time before their heart would stop, and they knew how to listen for a heartbeat. They also knew that the Roman army was not like today's army. If they failed in their mission, they weren't going to simply be written up. They were going to be executed. That was the standard practice within the Roman army. If you fail to do your job, you will be put to death. They knew that their life depended on it. They've come up with ideas like somebody stole his body. Again, we know from history that a Roman guard was placed around his tomb. Not only were Roman soldiers excellent at killing people, they were also very good at guarding things because their life was on the line. My favorite, of course, is that the disciples hallucinated, right? Some people think they just had some bad fish. And they thought they saw Jesus. They had a vision. Jesus is alive. Of course, the problem with that is that Luke records that Jesus stayed with them for 40 days. 40 days he stayed with them, talking with them, eating with them, fellowship with them with them, them handling Jesus and touching him and holding him. John tells us that a week after the resurrection, Jesus appeared to them by the lake of Tiberias after a night of fishing, and Jesus calls out to them, and they hear his voice, and they look over, and he's got a little fire, and he's got some fish cooking, and invites them over, and they sit, and they eat with him, they fellowship, and they have a conversation So when you read stories like that, you got to realize that what people forget to do is to put themselves into that situation. I mean, if you had a close friend, a very, very close friend, for three years, you had this friend, and you saw them die in some horrible accident right in front of you. You witnessed it. It was a horrible car accident. They were in a bloody mess. The ambulance took him away. You get to the hospital. The family's there. The doctor comes out of the emergency room. He says, I'm sorry. We did everything we can. They're gone. 
lost them. And then there's the funeral service, and you go there to the, to the visitation, and it's an open casket, and there's their body, and you can see them. They're dead. Your friend that you've known for so long. You go to the funeral, graveside ceremony, and you see the casket put into the grave. And then a week later, you happen to be at the park, and you hear someone calling your name that sounds like your friend's voice. And you look over, and you see someone that looks very much like my friend. And they invite you over to the picnic table, and you go over, and you sit, and you eat with them, and you talk with them, and you fellowship with them, and you handle them, and you hold them, and you embrace them you would walk away from that experience with one thing convinced in your mind. You're not dead. You're alive. And there is nothing that anybody could say or do to you that would convince you otherwise. I ate with them. You don't think I know my own friend? I sat there across the table. They're alive. Jesus spent... 40 days eating with them, fellowshipping with them, talking. This was not a passing hallucination or some vision. They were convinced Jesus is very much alive, just like you and I are very much alive. This is why every gospel presentation... This is why every gospel presentation that you look at in the book of Acts, go through and look at the various times gospels are, the gospel is presented by uh, various uh, apostles in the book of Acts. They all include the resurrection. They all include the resurrection. This is a good evangelism lesson there. So oftentimes we leave that out. We talk about God loves you. He sent his son. He died on the cross. You Don't you want to believe? Go to heaven. They always include the resurrection. Why? Because they understood everything that Jesus did is meaningless without the resurrection. Yes, it's good news. He came. He died on the cross for our sins. But here's how we know that. And they include the resurrection of Christ in their gospel presentation. This is why Peter goes there in his sermon at Pentecost. He only touches on the death of Christ in one verse, and we'll look at that in a minute. Verse 23. He touches on the death of Christ in one verse, and then the whole rest of his message is about the resurrection of Christ. Because without that, if you're not convinced of that, you either won't get saved or you're not going to follow Jesus very long if you're not convinced of the resurrection. And so Peter continues his sermon, I should say, in verse 22. And let me just uh, give you a little bit of the context here because we're picking up in the middle of his uh, message. Uh, We're not going to go through all of it. But this is the day of Pentecost, and uh, this is a a celebration that was uh, commanded uh, by God to the Israelites in Leviticus chapter 23, 
and it marks the completion of the barley harvest. And so it was really a Thanksgiving celebration. They brought in the barley, and they're excited, and they are going to celebrate, and they give thanks to God. And Pentecost occurred 50 days after the first day of Passover. And you remember Passover lasts for 10 days. There's the first day. And, of course, Jesus dies uh, on that first day, the Passover is when he dies. So this is 50 days after the, uh, the death and the resurrection of Christ. Uh, Christ has ascended into heaven only about 10 days prior to this. And Peter ex is explaining to them everything that has happened. So all of these Jews are gathered in Jerusalem, which is where all of this, the celebrations take place. They've gathered from around the Mediterranean world, the Roman world, and they are there in Pentecost. And it's a public event because the Holy Spirit comes upon the disciples uh, of Christ and there's little fire flames of tongues over their heads and they begin to speak in tongues and they begin to speak in the native language of all of the people who are there who are not believers. So obviously it's in some sort of a public forum because there's believers and unbelievers alike. They're all there and they see what's happening with Jesus' disciples and they're thinking, what? What is going on here? I can hear them speaking in my native tongue. And so Peter begins to explain to them that this is in fulfillment of Joel chapter 2, which he cites beginning in verse 17, in the last days it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs in the earth below, and blood and fire and vapor and smoke. And the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls in the name of the Lord shall be saved. So Peter wants them to understand that that prophecy in Joel 2 has come to fruition, has come to fulfillment in that the day has come when it is not just upon a few. In the Old Testament, there was this special uh, Holy Spirit anointing that would come upon a few of God's people, namely the prophets and the kings, and they would prophesy in God's name. And Joel 2 says there's going to come a day when all of God's people will prophesy. They will all be prophets of God and priests of God. And the Holy Spirit will be poured out upon all of them. And Peter says this is happening now, but he wants them to understand why it's happening. Okay, fine, we get that, Peter. It's Joel 2, but why now? Because of Christ. Because the Messiah has come, because of what Christ has come to accomplish in his life and death and resurrection, this is why Joel chapter 2 is now being fulfilled. And so he wants to present them with the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And so he says in 22... Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. 
as you yourselves know. It's only been about 50 days since the crucifixion and the resurrection of Christ. And we know, according to uh, Paul and 2 Corinthians, that uh, Jesus appeared to not just the disciples, but at one point to as many as 500 people during the 40 days that he was with them. Peter is reminding them, as you yourselves know, Peter is reminding them, look, many of you who are here know what I'm talking about. Many of you probably followed Jesus during his three-year ministry. You saw his teachings. You saw his miracles. You saw him crucified, and you saw him raised back to life. And then he says in verse 23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So again, it's interesting that this is the only time that Peter mentions the crucifixion of Christ. But what is really interesting about this verse is that here we see the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man juxtaposed side by side. Peter makes clear to them that you did not frustrate God's plan. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. In other words, God did this. You didn't frustrate God's plan. God has always intended to send a Redeemer to send the Messiah into the world who would die on the cross for sin and for sinners. Yet at the same time that he says, God did this, he also says, you did this, right? You did this. Delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless Men, the sovereignty of God does not get you off the hook. You are responsible for your own actions. You are responsible for your own decisions. We are not puppets. We are not chess pieces that God simply moves around on a chessboard. In the end, we can never fully understand how God's sovereignty and human responsibility work together, but we know that they are both true. We know that God is in complete sovereign control of everything, of everything. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11 says this, In him that is in Christ we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works, listen, all things according to the counsel of his will. The Bible doesn't tell us that God works most things according to the counsel of his will or that God works many things according to the counsel of his will. The Bible tells us that God works all things according to the counsel of of his own will, his own desire. What God wants, God does. 
And what God does not want to happen will not happen. In this entire universe, in all of creation, there is no such thing as a maverick molecule. God is in sovereign control of everything. Yet at the same time, the Bible is very clear that we are responsible for our own actions and we justly reap the consequences of our own decisions. James 1, 14 and 15 says this, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. When we sin, when we commit sin, we do that. Nobody else makes us do it. We make our own decisions and we reap our own consequences of our own actions. But somehow, behind everything that happens in this world, behind everything that happens in our life, behind every decision we make and every action that we undertake, somehow behind it all and underneath it all lies the sovereignty of God. And that's about as close as we can ever get to understanding the sovereignty of God as it relates to human responsibility because God is transcendent. God is beyond our understanding. But then Peter says in verse 24 of our text, God raised him up, so he immediately goes into the resurrection. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Death could not hold him. So God raised him up. The question is why? Why could death not keep Jesus in the grave? Well, Rather than give you my explanation, Peter provides an explanation for us beginning in verse 25. Notice how he begins verse 25. For, so here's the reason. Here is why he had to be raised. For David says concerning him, now he's going to cite Psalm 16, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Now, first of all, if you look back at Psalm 16, he's citing from verses 8 to 11. You may notice that the wording is not quite right. And you might think, oh, wait, did he misquote scripture? I mean, I thought he's an apostle, right? I mean, why is he not quoting scripture uh, accurately. He is, but this is because Peter is quoting from the Septuagint. And if you remember your history, the Septuagint is the uh, oldest. It is the first translation of the Hebrew Bible. It was translated into Greek uh, beginning in the uh, 3rd century B.C. and continuing into the 2nd century B.C. And that is because 
under the rule of Alexander the Great, many uh, Jewish children were growing up not speaking Hebrew. They were losing the Hebrew language, knowing how to speak it and read it. Greek was the common marketplace language, and so they translated the Old Testament into Greek, and that was the translation that most of the uh, Jewish people and the disciples were familiar with. In fact, throughout the New Testament, most often the apostles cite the Septuagint. That doesn't make it any less inerrant. It's no different than when we quote the Bible. What are we quoting? We're citing a translation, either the ESV or the NIV or the New American Standard or the King James Version, if you really want to be holy. But we're citing a translation of the Bible, which we understand is just as valid as citing the original manuscript. So just so you know, Peter is accurately citing from the Septuagint, which he would have grown up with and would have been most familiar with. But listen to the reason that he gives for Christ not being able to remain dead. Here's his argument. It was prophesied. Jesus had to rise from the dead because David prophesied that he would rise from the grave. The central point of his argument is verse 27, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your holy one see corruption. Well, who is David speaking of? Himself? David can't be speaking of himself. Why? Peter explains why. I mean, he is doing great exegetical work here. He's exegeting Psalm 16 for his audience. And he says in verse 29, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence, by the way, read a little bit of sarcasm into his voice here. This is, he's using some sarcasm here. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence, I'm fairly certain, I am pretty sure that the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Pretty sure of that. If you doubt me, go check. The tomb is still here. If we opened it up, we're going to see that his body is still there in the tomb. Peter then references the Davidic covenant in verse 30. He continues, being therefore a prophet, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his Throne. So he's referencing the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Look, he's reminding his audience, remember, God swore to David, you're going to have a son. Your son will reign upon your throne forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And David was a prophet, and we know prophets don't make mistakes. Verse 31, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. In other words, he wants him to understand that David is not writing about himself. David is writing about his son, Jesus Christ, the heir to the throne of David. In other words, his argument 
is based in the inerrancy and the trustworthiness and the authority of Scripture. He says, look at, at, at uh, Psalm 16. We know David was a prophet. We know that David could not be talking about himself because David died and he was buried and his body is still here with us, or at least his bones are still in the tomb, probably in an ossuary where they would take their bones and put it in a box. And who is he talking about? He wants them to understand that Jesus is the Messiah. Notice what he goes on to say in verse 32. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. We are all witnesses. Notice how he keeps including them in these phrases. He says at the end of verse 22, mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. And then he says at the end of verse 23, that you, whom you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And then in verse 32, this Jesus God raised up and of that we are all witnesses. When he says we are all, I don't think he is, <coughs> I don't think he's referring to just the disciples themselves. Because we know from 1 Corinthians 15, 6, that Paul says that at one point Jesus appeared to as many as 500. So he's looking at this large crowd, and he realizes that, look, many of you in this crowd we're probably there and you followed Jesus and you, you listened to his teachings and you saw the miracles. Maybe you were even there when he multiplied the bread and the fish and you ate and were satisfied. Many of you very likely were there when he rode into Jerusalem and you were all shouting, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the son of David. Blessed is the king of Israel. And you thought this is the Messiah. And maybe you were shocked as we were, that he was crucified and then died. And so then you thought to yourself, well, maybe he wasn't the Messiah. Maybe we made a mistake. And Peter is saying to them, you didn't make a mistake because you saw that he was risen from the dead. You witnessed his resurrection. Many of you, the 500 that he appeared to, may have been standing right in front of Peter. And he's wanting them to understand you didn't make a mistake because David prophesied in Psalm 16 that the Messiah had to die and would not see corruption and would be raised. Because who else was David talking about? It's interesting to see that Peter goes back to the Old Testament and exegetes Scripture to make his argument as to who Jesus is. In the end, he argues, based on the trustworthiness and the authority of prophetic scripture. However, there's a second reason that Jesus had to rise from the dead. So we get from Peter that he had to rise. He couldn't stay dead. Because Scripture is trustworthy and true and authoritative. The Bible tells us in Psalm 16 that the Messiah had to die and rise. He couldn't stay dead. 
But we also understand from Pauline theology that death could not hold him. This is what Paul asserts regarding sin and death. Because what Paul tells us in Romans, for example, 5.12, Paul says this, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. So Paul makes the argument that the reason all men die, all people die, is because all people have sinned. That's why we die, because we're all sinners. And then he says in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, for the wages of sin is death. Death is the consequence of sin. Death is the result of sinning. Adam and Eve wouldn't have died had they never sinned. But they sinned, and so they died. Which begs the question, if death is the consequence of sin, then why did Jesus die? He died to pay the penalty for our sin, but not to pay for his own. Thus, Jesus had to die in order to pay for our sin, but he could not stay dead because he himself was not sinful. And we know that not just because Jesus claimed it or because the disciples claimed it, but at one point, even when standing in front of a crowd of people, he says to them, if one of you can accuse me of sin, then do so. And nobody says anything. That's an astounding a claim to make. How many of you would be willing to stand in front of your family and say, if one of you can accuse me of sin, please do so? Right? You'd be laughed out of the living room. Jesus says that in front of people who have lived with him for three years, the disciples, people who have known him, people who grew up with him, and says, which one of you can accuse me of and they all just sort of scratched their head. You know, honestly, I can't think of one. I mean, the guy just never does anything wrong. And even when he says unkind things to people like the Pharisees and the scribes, we all know they deserve that. In the end, it would have been unjust for God to leave him in the grave. Because if death is the consequence of sin and Jesus never sinned, he could not stay dead. It would be unjust, and God is the just judge of all the universe. This is the reason the resurrection is so important. And why the resurrection of Christ, not the cross of Christ, the resurrection of Christ is the assurance of our salvation. The resurrection of Christ is proof positive of three incredibly important truths in the Christian life. Three that I want to give you. I hope you'll write them down, maybe even on the inside flap of your Bible, and you can turn back to them from time to time throughout your life. First, the resurrection of Christ proves 
that Jesus was who he claimed to be. Jesus was the Messiah, the Savior of the world, the Lamb of God, the Son of David. Jesus was God in the flesh because he claimed to be God. And even when they accused him of blasphemy and when he cleansed out the temple and they said, what gives you the authority to do? By what proof? What proof do you offer that you have the right to do these things? Jesus said, destroy this temple, his body, and in three days I will raise it up. The resurrection is proof that everything Jesus taught and everything that he did and everything that he claimed to be is absolutely true and trustworthy and believable. Number two, the resurrection of Christ is proof that he was in fact sinless, which means that he has earned righteousness for us. Did you ever think about that? The resurrection of Christ is the assurance of our justification. Because if Jesus was not sinless, then he would not have perfect righteousness that could be credited to us. Without the resurrection of Christ, there is no not guilty verdict in the courtroom of God. The resurrection of Christ is inextricably linked to his justification, to our justification. Paul says that in Romans 4, 25, beginning in verse 22, he says, that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness, but the words that was counted to him were not written for his sake only, but for ours also it was counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses, right? He was crucified for our trespasses, and was raised for our justification. The resurrection of Christ is proof that we stand justified before God. And number three, the resurrection of Christ is proof positive that since Christ had no sins of his own to atone for, he was able to atone for our sins. We have been forgiven because Christ rose from the dead. The resurrection of Christ, in the end, the resurrection of Christ gives us the assurance and the comfort and the peace of knowing that our sins have been forgiven that we have been justified in the eyes of God and that we have been reconciled to God. And it's all because Christ rose from the grave. Amen? Let's pray. Our gracious God, Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for your amazing grace and goodness and love. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for being willing step out of the glories of heaven and become a man. To do for your people what we could never do for ourselves. We thank you for raising yourself from the dead to fortify our faith, to give us the assurance that we have been forgiven, that we have been 
justified, that we have been reconciled to God. We thank you, we praise you, we worship you, and we love you. In Christ's name, amen.